Welcome to episode 7 of Tailoring Tech and Talk with me, Roberto Revilla. I'm a bespoke tailor, menswear designer and owner of Roberto Revilla London Suit and Shirtmakers. So why this podcast? I love tailoring because I love taking care of people. I work with so many fascinating individuals and this gives you the chance to join me as I introduce you to some of them. Delve into their lives, the highs and lows of their journeys and the lessons they've learned along the way. My hope is that you'll learn something new, meet some interesting people and feel inspired to get involved through your feedback each episode or by even joining me as a guest. This week, I'm joined by actor, comedian, writer and author Tez Ilias. I explore how Tez worked hard to turn his passion into a career, how he almost blew up his big break, the question of identity as the children of immigrants in modern Britain, and some special insights ahead of the launch of his new autobiography. Enjoy. This week, it's a very special treat as I'm joined by an absolute jewel in the crown of British Asian comedy. Not only is he a writer, stand-up comedian and actor, he's set to add author to his CV with the imminent release of his first book. He's also scorer of the greatest own goal in football history. Tez Ilias. Tez, how are (laughs) you? Yes, I am. (laughs) How are you? I'm good, Roberto, man. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really, really good. Thank you. I cannot find any footage of this own goal anywhere. Please don't tell me that I have to wait until I've read through your book to find out about it. Yeah, I think you're going to have to. Unfortunately, there is. it was at a time where we just weren't filming everything automatically. Um, and it happened on the training ground. So it wasn't, in a, it wasn't in the league game. It happened in the week during training. And uh, <laughs> so I'm, 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 a sh- I'm shit at football. Uh, but when I, was, when I was at high school, my dad, who is amazing at football, and he was like, he played without coining an oxymoron, but he played football. At a, he, played, he played amateur football at a very high level. So with a proper Sunday league star, like just trophy cabinet, a cabinet full of trophies and stuff. And um, so he put a team together for me and my cousins to play uh, Sunday league football. And I just was the shittest player. I was always on the bench. And um, remember there was one training session where I was defending. So I like, I just got moved around the pitch all the time. So I started the striker, then played left wing, left back, said like everything, like just try and fit me into this team. But most of the time I was on the bench. But anyway, on this, on this, on this one training session, I was in defense and we were attacking. I think we had a corner. So I was slightly outside the box, just defending, make sure in case the ball came back out, I could defend or whatever. Yeah. So their team has cleared it over my head. So I'm running back towards my own goal, uh, trying to get to the ball. Our main star striker, Nasser Azad, is chasing me. And this boy was fast and tall and strong. And I could feel him breathing down my neck. So, so that I've just come to the ball. And what I attempted to do was volley it out of play. Because it was training ground, it wasn't like a full 11 side pitch. It was like a smaller yeah. pitch. So what I tried to do was just volley it out of play. What I ended Which up was doing... was the smart thing to yeah, do at the moment. Yeah, because I thought I'm not good enough to kind of trap it and take him on and whatever. So I just... He's breathing down my neck. He's faster, stronger, better than me. Get it out of there. Just get it out of there. Then my team can... My team will catch... Like, my team will then regroup and we'll be able to defend. So I tried to volley it into Rosette. What I ended up doing was smashing it into the top corner from outside the box. Like, I just volleyed it. Like, it was such a clean hit. I was tempted to celebrate because it was it was like Tony Yaboa. It was so good. And like the keeper, like it was did a full stretch 
you know, David Seaman just dive into the top corner and couldn't get near it. I was just, we all just stopped and I was like, do I celebrate? Do I slide on my knees? What, what is the appropriate response to this? But everyone just stopped. We all just fell over laughing because I was like, that was such a good hit. I, I really would have loved to have seen that. If there is anyone listening out there, one of Tez's old school mates, whatever, you know, teammates, anyone that has got that on video, I've got to see it. Otherwise, anyone who's an animator out there that might be able to do a virtual presentation <laughs> of that would be fantastic as well. Oh but, my God. It was such a, such a, one of the best goals I've ever scored. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like one of the best own goals that anyone would ever score. Um, my memories of football at school, because I grew up in Croydon and uh, it was predominantly non-Asian, shall we say. Um, so I never used to get picked for any of the teams. So I remember we went on the City of London Schools tournament where there was an A team, a B team, a C team and a D team. So I'm thinking, yes, this is my chance. Because they just used to assume, because you're Asian, you must be good at cricket. Yeah, right, 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 right. So I never get put, got picked for football, yeah. no matter how good I was. I mean, I'd like to think I was pretty good. So I thought, here, I've got a chance. Like, I could make the C team or the D team. So we go on this trip. Then they hand out the team sheets when we get there. All these other fancy schools competing in this tournament. And I'm not on any of the team sheets. So I go up to... So why did they, why, why did they take you along? Like the cheerleader? I, I think, uh, I don't know, actually. I mean, you know, maybe they thought I could keep score or something. <laughs> Going back to, you know, cricket yeah. scorer. Um, so I, I went to Mr. Kent, who was our PE teacher. And I said, um, I'm not on any of the team sheets. Why am I here? And he said, oh, God. So he turns around to the other PE teacher and he says, oh, we forgot this one. Oh, what, the glasses kid? Okay, well, just stick him on the subspench for one of them. And just luck would have it. They stuck me on the subspench for the A team. Obviously had no intention of bringing me on. The B team, C team, D team were absolutely thrashing whoever they were playing by like five, six, seven, eight, nine goals. It was ridiculous. You remember what school football yeah, was like yeah. when we were like yeah, yeah, 14, yeah. 15 years old, yeah? A team, nil-nil at halftime. So in the end, I got brought on. For my best friend, they put me on his left wing. I'm a right footer. We went 2-0 up. I got both assists. Nice. Crowning glory. Nice. Do you think that this would have led to more opportunities? No. Not only did I never get to play football for the school ever again, I got demoted to scorer on the cricket team. Mad. I know. Speechless. That's right? awful. We, um, yeah. no, the, the, we, we, Asian, I mean, it's, it's so frustrating. I think it's changed a bit now, but it's so frustrating that people never realised that for British Asians, football was our love. Like, we loved football. We loved football so much. Like, I, like, you know, I grew up playing football and there were so many times, like my cousin Was, who's featured produ- heavily in, the, in my book, he's, he was so good at, fo- like, he was a baller, man. The sort of kid who, like, the ball would come in, he'd flick it over his head, flick it over his own head, the defender's head, turn around and hit you on the volley. Into, like he was, that's how he played football. He was so good. But just, you know, no scouts ever came to watch him. And like, I'm not saying he would have made it, made it, but I feel like he had the potential to make it to, at some sort of level. But it's, uh, there were no scouts who'd come to watch the leagues because we played in the Asian leagues. So there were no scouts to come and watch him. And I was like, it was so frustrating because I'm like, I would love to, and there were so many good, Bung- my, my, the Bengali kids were so good at football. I don't know what it's like in London. But then Bengali kids out here were absolute ballers, man. They were so wow. good. And I feel like if they were playing in Spain, where there isn't so much of a 
emphasis on physicality and how tall you are and how strong you are and stuff. They're like, you know, and Iniesta, Xavi, can you play football? The rest can come later. You can put, you can bulk up later. You can, you can, you can gain strength later, but you can't gain skill. Or you can gain skill in terms of like you can, you can practice, but there's an innate skill that these Bengali kids had that I thought like you can't teach that. Yeah, we had one Bengali kid in the school. I remember he, uh, his father owned a local Bengali restaurant. Of course. Uh, and he had the build and everything. He was that sort of height, really compact, that Iniesta, Messi type sort of build as well. Yeah. But he was rubbish, man. He had two left feet. He oh, always no, used man. to get. He used to get picked last. Yeah, yeah. No, we had the Bengali kids here. Like there was there was a kid called Aziz, and at four years old he could do hundred keep yuppies, and that's the sort of thing that you used to say about like Michael Owen and Wayne Rooney. And I was like, this kid, probably if he was nurtured properly, probably could have made it to some standard of football, but just you know, like he would come. He started sort of kid who went off the rails slightly in his teens. And now and again, he'd play football like once every in a blue moon. He'd come and just have a kickabout with us and just embarrass everyone. And there were some good players that played with, like I was one of them, but there were some good players that played with us. But he was just like comfortably had the best touch on. He might not have been the best because his fitness wasn't, his fitness eventually went. But like in terms of his touch and stuff, he was easily the best player on the pitch. And I was like, just, but just, you know, there was no nurturing of this talent. Mad. Well, I mean, generally, what was it like growing up in Blackburn in such a, I guess it was a very dense, Pakistani Muslim community there because when they all came over sorry when they all came over um, you know the the Pakistani community a a lot of them ended up in the Blackburn Lancashire area because of the cotton mill industry up there. Yeah yeah. My dad didn't. I don't know how my dad my uncle Shafiq not my real uncle obviously is my dad's best friend but call him uncle Shafiq. Yeah yeah yeah. And my uncle Shafi they ended up somehow in London at the, I think they were working at the Pakistani embassy, so they never made it to the north of the country. They must have just got off the plane at Heathrow and just, you know. <laughs> That's all. It makes me laugh so much about all the Indians that live in Southall. It's like you just got off the plane and went, "We're not moving. We're <laughs> That's staying it. right yeah, here. We're done. We'll go. We'll go. We'll go a mile that way, and we're just stopping." <laughs> but, um, but no, we, um, yeah, there's, there's a huge uh, British Asian, uh, sorry, there's a huge South Asian population in Blackburn. Um, predominantly Muslim and either Pakistani, Gujarati, but Gujarati Muslim uh, or Bengali. And there's a couple of Hindu and Sikh families, but literally less than a handful. Just a couple. Yeah, just a, literally a couple. Not sort of like a couple of like 10. I mean, like literally less than a handful. And then growing up, there were very few black families as well. There's a few more now, but African, uh, whereas there were less, I mean, yeah, there were less Africans in this country in the 80s anyway, and there weren't any up here. So there are a couple of like obviously people with Jamaican and, and Caribbean roots, um, like Jeanette Ebanks, who was at primary school with, and Bola Archibong, but there weren't that many black families either. It was mainly either whites or Asians, and all the Asians were predominantly Muslim, Gujarati, Pakistani, Bengali. Yeah. Probably in that order. Pakistani, Gujarati maybe, and then slightly less Bengalis. My mum and dad, they they really struggled because they were really concerned with us not going off the rails. <laughs> Um, from their perspective and uh, you know becoming too English or British like British was one thing but yeah. becoming English yeah, was yeah, like yeah. you know I mean that was total disaster yeah yeah you know what do you do you actually consider yourself English it's an interesting question I was thinking about that last night because I saw that David Lammy tweet so the, the David Lammy right, thing yeah that woman call in on LBC yeah 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 and, you know um, 
I British definitely. Yeah, English, same. English just same. seems to be a, like like if I say I consider myself English, my mum magically would be ringing me like right now. She'd just appear on the phone if I said that. So I I don't know. I think maybe for me as a natural instinct, it, maybe that's just one step too far. But then when it's the World Cup or the Euros, I'm wearing the three yeah. lines on my chest and I'm proud as anything. Yeah, yeah, no, similar, very, very similar. Like, like I never say. I'm English. I always say I'm British. But if I was Scottish, or Welsh, <laughs> or Irish, I would say I would say I'm Scottish. I'm Irish. I'm Welsh. Yeah. But with English, there's a certain. I guess we 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 the entire empire. When this is the British Empire, what we really mean is the English Basically. Empire. Not that Scots. Not that Scots and the Welsh are completely. You know that they have. They're they also have. You know, bloody hands, but. The English also oppressed the Scots and the Welsh, and the Irish. Um, so they were the predominant force when it came to empire and the excesses of the empire. So when you say English, it feels a bit. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm British. I'm British. I'm British. Yeah. Like yeah, I've, I've, I've struggled. I struggled to say I'm English. Yeah, it is an interesting question, and that that David Lammy uh, tweet, and then the subsequent posting of the clip uh, from his show, really, really got me thinking about that, and. I guess identity is something that certainly I struggled with growing up all the time because there was always this conflict. And when you're growing up under such a strict upbringing, your natural instinct as a kid is always to rebel against what your parents want you to do. Mm. And I always wonder if if we had been in a place, I don't know, like Blackburn or, you know, one of the... East, Lon- East London. East London, yeah. If we'd just not been in South London... Um, I, I wonder... Or, to, or, 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 or Tooting rather than Croydon. Or Tooting, yeah, which wasn't that far away, actually. We used to go to Tooting a lot because, you know, we always used to... My dad always used the butchers there and always used to go to Umbala, you know, get a get a sneaky two-pound yeah, yeah, mix yeah. box, you know? All the hubsy hull while we'd gone by the time we got home. But it's also, you can't... If you're not from there, you're not hanging out there because London, London doesn't really let you do that. Yeah, this is true. And they can tell that you're not actually from there. post cold Wars and all that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, where we were SW16, Tooting's only SW17, but you hung out there longer than 10 minutes. You know, it's like, just take your stuff, go, get out. We know you're yeah. not from here. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> anyway, so getting, uh, I guess, where did you go to university? Lancaster. So not that far. Um, not that far. And also... You know, one of the best unis in the country. I got very lucky. I got very lucky because I flunked my A-levels. Um, I had to end up, spoilers for the book, but I ended up having to go through clearing. And I managed to fail upwards. Like, it was just, like, just worked out really, really well. Yeah, because from there, you just went off like a firework. You have a degree in biochemistry. For my sins, yeah. And you went on to do a master's as well. Yeah, so a master's in management. Because by the time I got to the end of my degree, I realised I didn't want a career. I kind of fell in love with Fell out of love with science. Didn't really want to do a career in it. Uh, so I ended up doing a master's in management to broaden my career prospects, yeah. which which they did, which I did. So how happy were your parents when you graduated with that biochemistry degree? Oh, delighted. I, th- I think they always thought that I'd end up working, you know, in some sort of biochemistry type field or maybe go on, maybe go on to medicine, go on to do medicine and stuff because they don't really know how the world works. Um but, you know, I was kind of adamant that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I ended up doing this, staying on at uni for another year. And probably part of the motivation to do a master's was also just to stay on at uni for another year because I was yeah. having such a great time. 
um, which so I did. And uh, yeah, then I went to do a master's in management, which I kind of made me more employable, I think, and gave me the confidence to apply for those broader graduate jobs. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, one of which was uh, ending up in the civil service. So you were actually in my hometown for a little while at the home office before you transferred to Westminster. Yeah, so I ended up going applying for the Fast Stream, which is the graduate program for the civil service. Was successful because I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's a, it's one of the most demanding and uh, most oversubscribed graduate schemes. So you know, Alhamdulillah, I got really lucky to be to get accepted. Um, and then yeah, my first job was in Croydon, working in Block B in the Whitgift Centre. Yeah, I remember the Whitgift Centre. Lots of gang wars going on there. Yeah, I was above it. I was slightly above it all. Um, trying not to trying not to get involved in any of that stuff. Also, like, oh, oh that's all high school stuff anyway, mainly. Yeah, well, when I was at stuff. college, that's what well, that's what used to end up happening is that you would end up at the Whitgift Centre. So you, all the buses from where I was, John Ruskin, they would end up at the Whitgift Centre, and then from there you got the next bus to wherever you needed to go. Right, but you never got the next bus because you'd always hang around to see uh, which group was going to be coming along from whichever college. And yeah, look, okay, right, I'm just bullshitting now. It was all about girls, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, anyhow, memories. But from there, so your stand-up career was in its embryonic stage, right? So you're working at the Home Office in the Silver Service mm. by day. And then by night, you're off doing this other thing. Yeah, it happened. So it didn't happen straight away. So I moved to London in 2000 and, at the end of 2006. So 2007. Right. Um, did London for a year. Went back up north. So then I spent 2008 and nine up north. And then came back at the end of 2009. Uh, and then I lived in London for like eight years. Um, so at the beginning of 2010, it was kind of like, I just need a hobby. I need something to do. Yeah. And that's where stand up ended up happening there was no ambitions there was no aspirations um not even really borderline fantasy like just you know i didn't even know how you get i was looking for a writing workshop a creating writing workshop and ended up finding a stand-up workshop that is how it started wow. um and i just i was in the right place at the right time in the right frame of mind just to say yes to the universe and say yes i'll go on this workshop because at a different time of the month, I might have said no, depending on what bill I've got. Because I was broke. I was broke. I was living month to month, um, hand to mouth, having my overdraft to pay off, my credit card debts to pay off, a top card card to pay off, um, <laughs> and as well as a um, my, my the loan that I took out to do my master's, so my career development loan that I took out to do my master's. Yeah. So I was in 25 grand worth of debt when I left uni, and so by 2010, it's probably still 20 grand or something. So, you know, I just, it just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And just because I think the, the, the workshop ended up, I think the workshop cost like 130 pounds, which was a lot of money for me then. I mean, it still is. But like then it was, it was so much money, more than I could spare. But I was just, yeah, the universe said, what do you think about this? And I was just at that particular time on that particular day on that particular afternoon, I was like, sure, yes. And I made sure I paid for it in full because I thought if I have to pay for installments, I might end up cancelling it. So I think if I pay for it, then I have to do it. Yeah, exactly. So you start this creative writing workshop. No, stand-up workshop. Stand-up workshop, sorry. I was I was looking for a creative writing workshop and, I, and then I saw that and I thought, hmm, let's do that one. Yeah. And was it because it looked more fun or what was it that spoke to you? 
Yeah, I think I think it did seem more fun. I mean, I love stand I'd love stand up on TV up to that point. I don't think I'd ever been to see a gig, but I loved watching stand up on TV. Um I knew just something that, you know, I was a funny guy. My friends always told me I was funny. So, you know, you you end up if people say enough, you end up believing it. So, I just and I also thought like worst case scenario, I'd meet new people and make a fool of myself. I can accept both of those things. So, yeah, it just I just, it just I guess it just appealed to me more and it seemed less like I just the performance side of it I think felt more like was creative writing felt like you then have to sit there and study and write which seemed like work whereas performing seemed less like work. I guess also, you know, if you're approaching it from the point of view that it's it's a hobby, if it works out great, if it doesn't, you know, so yeah. what, but either yeah, way yeah, I'm going to enjoy it, then when it eventually as it has done for you has become work you're not really working. Yeah, completely, right? completely. There's that famous saying, you know, if you do what you love or are passionate about, you never work another day in your life. Yeah, completely, completely. Yeah. Um, I mean, it feel like work sometimes, but on the best days, it is incredible. Uh, but yeah, so that was, it's been what, it, it'd be 11 years in the summer uh, since my first ever gig. Yeah. Which was, which was the showcase from that workshop. Um, and then I just found the fascinating subculture that is the open mic circuit. I just threw myself into it, man. And it was a world away from Blackburn, a world away from my day job. But I was living on my own in a house shed. No one no one to really answer to. No one to say, where are you going? Why are you out every night? Because I, was, I didn't have anyone to answer to. I didn't, yeah. you know, so it was, I really took advantage of that. Almost, uh, I don't know if you'll tell me if it was by accident or by design, but you stood out amongst a lot of other comedians around that sort of time because you were so smartly dressed. Because mm. um, I always remember you as being the suited comedian. It's nothing to do with... I mean, I love comedy. I follow a huge number of stand-ups. Um, and I always remembered you standing out because you were always in a suit, shirt and tie. But I remember, I think from one of your gigs at the Soho Theatre, you actually telling the audience that actually it, it was because... Well, you you tell us why. Yeah, because the reason, and that, and that was, I did stand out actually. And I remember it being in a, in a very early review, sartorially stylish. And I had to look up what the word sartorially meant <laughs> because I didn't know, I thought it was a compliment about my writing or my comedy. It wasn't, it was about what I was wearing. Uh, and yeah, and it, and it came about because um, I went to do stand-up gigs after my day job. So I wore a suit to work. You know, London's a big place. You don't have time to go home and change and go back out again if you're finishing work at six and you've got to be somewhere for eight, you don't have that time to go home and come back out. Once yeah. you're home, you don't want to leave. So, no. you know, and even like most people's social life, a lot of London social life happens after work, straight after work. People don't go home. You just go straight out. Yeah. Um, and so that was doing, I was going, and often it was quite funny though. So I then started playing up to it. So when I, when it became like, oh yeah, you're the stylish one. I then started playing up to it. So there were times where I'd put a tie on after work. So I might not have put, like I put the tie in my bag, top button undone, and then on the way to the gig, I put the tie on. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm slightly smartly, more smartly dressed for the gig in this room above a pub than I was working at the home office yeah. during the day. So yeah, that became a thing. So I kind of just played up to it. And I think it became a thing until I left work. And then I was like, do I really want to put a suit on at 7 p.m. before I head out? Maybe not. And I kind of dropped it a little bit. Yeah, I think it held you in good stead because it definitely did make you stand out and it made you stick in people's minds. Now, obviously, someone at the BBC, uh, you got the you got their attention 
um, because I think the first time we really saw you on the small screen was when you uh, you actually wrote it, um, but you performed a, sh- a five-minute short for the BBC uh, entitled The Fast and the Fool, um, which was one of, of five shorts that they, they broadcast yep. in 2015. And I... Yeah, I mean, I still remember. I mean, I rewatched it again, obviously, uh, last week. But it's just so funny. It's it's about, I guess, the day in the life of a of a, a fasting Muslim during Ramzan um, on the first day of Ramzan, actually. Mm. And it is just five minutes of of pure observational genius. Um, the montage of you getting up early in the morning and everything that you go through. I mean, I remember, you know, Ram- Ramzan in summer was the absolute worst. It's hard. Uh, because you have, yeah, that's right. Especially especially British before. summers, because it's so long. Yeah. yeah. I remember my dad getting me up at like 2, 2.15 in the morning, you know, to get up. Eat. Sometimes I wouldn't even bother. And that was the worst thing you could do, because then that's it. You're not, nothing's passing your lips until you get to about... 9 30 10 o'clock at night because the sun never sets in this country mm. in the summer it's crazy um but mm. but then as you go through your your working day it's just laugh after laugh as you're you've got temptation in front of you obviously culminating with the big one which is the girl in the office that you fancy i'm gonna put the link to this because i think it's still available if not on iplayer it's definitely on youtube i'm going to put the link to this in the show notes and anyone who's listening who hasn't seen it you have to it's absolutely brilliant and i'm not going to spoil the uh, the ending but sorry, anyway, my original question. Someone at the BBC, obviously you caught their attention. How did that all come about? Weirdly, and it's quite a, it came from quite a dark place, but at the beginning of 2015 was when Charlie Hebdo happened. It was January 2015 when the Charlie Hebdo massacre happened in Paris. Yeah. And the Now Show were looking for a Muslim contributor. Unfortunately for me, Phil Wang was in the writer's room that week and recommended me because we just gigged together recently. Uh, and so he recommended me. He's like, oh, Tez, you know, I've gigged with him recently. He's great. He's very funny. So I think he'd be ideal for this. So they've contacted my manager. My manager's rang me saying, oh, the, the, and bear in mind, I'm still working full time at this moment. I have a full time job. So I'm getting this call in yeah. the office. My manager's sent me an email saying, oh, the Now Show, I want to talk to you. Bro, I don't know what the Now Show is. <laughs> in January 2015, I don't know what this show is. So in my head... The Now Show is the radio version of The One Show. So... Mm, not quite. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But I didn't know that because I didn't grow up in a Radio 4 household. Yeah. We didn't grow up on BBC comedy, uh, radio comedy anyway. So so when Polly's like, they want to chat to you, Polly assumed I just knew what it meant. So Polly wasn't like, oh, it's a comedy show. Polly didn't explain what it was because she would, you know, rightly in her mind, assume I knew what The Now Show is, the biggest Radio, BBC comedy show, radio comedy. Probably is the BBC, biggest BBC comedy show, actually, but definitely the, the biggest radio comedy show anyway in the country. And I'm like, and that, so I didn't even clarify with her. I was just like, oh, I was like kind of almost like, oh, why do they want me? Like, I'm a, you know, oh, I don't want to do that. Almost like a bit. She goes, just, just, just hear them out. So I'm, I'm, so I'm like at the back of work, like I've gone to like a quiet place in the office and I'm ringing the producer uh, from the BBC and they're talking me through it, or how they want to come on, and they want a sort of Muslim perspective on what's happened this week and stuff, because they don't want to talk about Muslims. They'd rather Muslims talk about it. And I was like, in my head, I was like, oh, man, but I'm, I'm going to say something wrong. And then and then it, it dawned on me as the conversation was going on. I was like, hang on, so do you want me to do a set? And they were like, 
yeah, yeah, that's yeah. You want you want you to do a comedy set, and we're like, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, because I thought in my head I was like, they want to come on a couch and discuss it and debate it and stuff, and I'm like, Cause I don't fancy doing that. But I was like, oh, you want me to do a comedy set? Oh yeah, 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 massively for that. And then I, yeah, because they want they wanted you for the monologue yes, that takes place in yes, the final third of the show, yes. which for an up and coming comedian like yourself is absolutely huge, huge because it gives you a spotlight for a few minutes, huge with a captive audience when you're huge. listening on radio. It's so powerful. And you have got no bloody idea. I have no idea. I know, like, I was <laughs> so close to turning it down um, until I cottoned on, until the penny dropped. And then I Wikipedia'd it and I was like, oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. And then I did the show and I bloody nailed it, uh, which then put me on the radar of the BBC. Um, and it's kind of that pop, the short films are also commissioned by. There were a joint commission between iPlayer and BBC Asian Network. Uh, so the BBC Asian Network were already aware of me because I'm, I'm Asian. Um, so so that was an easy commission for them because then, you know, I was kind of putting my, getting my foothold foot, foot in. And I'd also won, I'd previously got to the final of the BBC New Comedy Award um, when they brought that back in 2011 after like a six-year hiatus. Uh, so I was in the first final when they brought it back with Angela Barnes, Joe Lysett, people like that. So... So that wow. was pretty cool, and um, and that was that was I was one year in. It was my first year of comedy, so it was almost unheard yeah. unheard of for someone with like age wise. I wasn't the youngest, but experience wise, I was definitely the youngest. Uh, to get to the final was like almost unheard of. Like after a year, like it, it's happened a handful of times, but out of like we're talking like like over a hundred people. So yeah, so that was pretty cool. Uh, so I was kind of on the radar a little bit, and then my fringe show, my Edinburgh fringe show that summer, twenty fifteen is what kind of got me proper attention from the BBC and other places because people just loved, loved that show, Test Talks. People loved that show. I'll never forget Test Talks, uh, not least because I've listened to all three series because uh, obviously it got turned into the radio series afterwards for uh, three series in total, Yeah, which I've just listened to over and over again because it's absolutely, again, it, you know, this... This talent you have for observational humour, it particularly resonates with British Muslims because, you know, I think from an outside point of view, they don't really understand what it's like growing up and being uh, a Muslim in, in Britain in modern times, mm. in modern times, because <laughs> we were here in the dark ages as well. And you were able to use Tez Talks to educate people. I mean, yeah, it was funny because I'm obviously the setup for anyone that's not had it where the hell have you been for the last six years? Go look it up. Again, I'll put the link in the show notes for you as well. But Test Talks is set up in a way that you... It's like an introductory seminar in converting to Islam and the audience are basically the recruits. Yeah, so the conceit the conceit is that the audience have been on a conversion to Islam course and my show is the final module before they go out and convert. So my course is like, okay, you've learned, like I kind of almost feel like, you've learned about Islam, you learned the rules now, you all know that, and you're all super keen, and everyone's about to convert. But now I just want to let you know what it's going to be like when you go out and convert, and how to integrate into Britain. Uh, so now it's the final module, and then once you leave the door, the imam will be there, and you go and convert, and you can go your merry way. So that, that was the conceit of the show. And obviously everyone's bought into it, and they know it's a joke, but but so the, throughout the show, rather than saying, and this was the smart bit, Rather than saying me, it became we. Yeah. And that was a smart thing that I did. 
So rather than talking to the audience, I almost made it like I was talking about all of us. Yeah. So I was like, obviously, when we struggle and when we receive prejudice, so the audience, I really put the audience in my shoes. So they were like, I remember I was having a conversation with a journalist uh, who was interviewing me for the book uh, just last week. And he was like, I remember, I had, I just, he goes, I had to snap myself out of it because there was a moment at the end of the show where you said, but we've been through this powerful monologue at the end of the show. And you said, now, when you leave this room and you go out as a Muslim, and I almost for a second believed that that was what was going to happen. And I had to like almost snap myself out of it that this is a show that I'm in. Um, and he goes, it was so powerful. And I was like, that was, I was so proud of what I was able to do in that show because it was that satire, bro. That's brassite. That's the the tradition of British satire yeah. I was doing in my own way. I remember, I think it was February 2016 because the show was then brought to the Soho Theatre and it, it sold out. We were lucky enough to have tickets and we were in the front row. I think you and I had already connected on social media, so we were already following each other. You heckled me. No, I didn't. Do you remember? Did you did. You heckled me. Or maybe it wasn't like that show. Maybe I've it was a show before. No, you did. You you did. You did heck, you uh, heckle me. And I remember being so annoyed and then we connected on, on Twitter and it was all fine. But there was a bit where, um, <laughs> you know, where the second P comes up on the PowerPoint. Yes. And th- and you were like, and and the punchline was, why would they capitalize the P? And you kind of gave it away. You were like, oh, look, the P's not capitalized. I know that that's the joke I was about to do. Do you remember? <laughs> I honestly don't remember. Listen, I, I, when it comes to heckling comedians, I've got that skill down pat. Now, generally, I like to think I'm very, uh, very respectful of performers. I mean, look, I was a drama and theater arts student. My career didn't go the way that I wanted it to because there was all this conflict with my parents who didn't want me to go off becoming an actor they wanted me to get a proper job right which was basically doctor accountant lawyer yeah, something yeah. like that yeah. yeah I've always had a lot of respect for people that are doing live performance but somehow and I think it's this sarcastic side to my nature that just comes out and I can't stop it sometimes but I remember in New York back in 2002 2003 we we're in a comedy club I got thrown out Uh, because the comedian up on stage, it was his first gig. I was with my American friends. Uh, This guy uh, doing the usual, you know, pointing people out in the audience, points at me, where are you from? London. Oh, London. Yeah, I know London. I've got friends in Liverpool up the road. And I was just like, Liverpool's like 300 miles away, bruv. It's nowhere near London. And that was it. It just killed the atmosphere dead. Like the guy had to, it was one of those... um, don't know if you've ever done... Yeah, he, he, you, he didn't have the skills to deal yeah. with it because it's his first gig. And that gig. was it. If they, if they died, they got taken off and the next comedian came on. So it was like one of those kind of uh, relay yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. the next three yeah. comedians all had to go straight away as soon as they picked on me. So I then got asked to leave. Then Dan Clark... Don't know if you... So Dan, famous for How Not yeah. to Live Your Life, amongst other things. So we saw Dan at the Bloomsbury Theatre in the front row... And this is how Dan and I uh, originally became friends. Again, we were following each other on, I think, no, we weren't following each other on social media. <clears throat> so I was a big fan of How Not to Live Your Life. I'm sat in the front row. Uh, Dan's looking at the front row and he points at me and says, hey, how you doing? You know, where are you from? What's your, you know, what's your vibe? I didn't say anything. So he goes again, hey, you. 
And I was just like, what, me? And he's like, yeah, you. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize you were talking to me. He's like, well, who else am I talking to? I said, I don't know. I thought you were talking to either of the guys sat either side of me because you're a bit cross-eyed. So I wasn't sure which way you were going. Oh, that shit. Was, I know, with Dan Clark as well. He ripped into me every single joke that he could insert my name into that was like, I mean, horribly offensive. That was it. I I was the butt of every single joke for the rest of that night. And so I think I tweeted out and I, you know, added him um, to say that I was sorry. And then he and I connected and became friends after that. And then this, and I even stopped there. Then the following year, we go to see Jackie Mason. And I think it might have been his last tour of the UK ever. Because by this time, Jackie Mason's getting on a bit. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're sat in the front row again. And uh, he points at me and he's, where are you from? London. No, because Jackie Mason's whole stick when he's pointing at the audience is to point out all the, uh, what do yeah, they yeah, call yeah. them? The Gentiles, right? Yeah, yeah, non-Jewish yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously I was an obvious target as being non-Jewish because I'm brown. So he points at me, where are you from? So I just looked at him and was like, I'm from London. But where are you no, from? No, where, where are you from? And this is a question people like us get asked all the time, right? So I just fell straight into that your normal response mechanism kicks in. I'm from London. No, where are you from? I'm from right here in London. Oh no, come on. And then he just started, he started attacking me, but it wasn't going anywhere. And then that was it. He absolutely lost it. We're only three minutes into his show. Packed house. I think it was a Leicester, it's where you're going to be performing. The Leicester Leicester Square Theatre. Leicester Square Theatre. So it's a Leicester Square Theatre, absolutely packed house. That was it. So when he's not getting anything out of me, he then starts attacking the woman next to me so bad she got up and walked out because <gasps> she couldn't take it. So I don't just behave I, yourself, I Roberto. I maybe know. not. Maybe not sit in the front row. <laughs> but anyway, I don't remember heckling you, bro. I'm so sorry. It wasn't that. It wasn't so much of a heckler, sort of like. You just you notice something and I just gave out. I opened my but big you, mouth. You kind of I? gave the joke of it that was about to do in thirty seconds. So I yeah. was like, I was just that's that's a big callback. It was a big callback you, you gag as well. It, you know what? You got that one kid in class because that's the thing. I, I was also that, that kid. I remember I used to heckle assemblies, bro. The teacher, <laughs> the teacher in assembly would ask a rhetorical question and, and I'd answer it, un unironically. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that the, the Soho theatre setting for Tez Talks was was uh, it was very intimate. Mm. So you'll obviously remember, but the spotlight was on you. But we were very very close to you because it was almost the audience was in a half round. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Very intimate. There were only I think four or five rows of us, and it really did feel like we were all absorbed in that moment, that hour, hour and a half with you, the same as you were with us, as you alluded to earlier. And it it, it was probably just that, that, you know, that second P came up on the PowerPoint presentation and I'm thinking to myself, I've grown up a British Muslim. I know all the answers to this. And I probably just, I didn't even realise I was doing it. I just opened my big mouth. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was was like, because I was like, it was one of those things that it could happen. Because the joke is on the screen. But obviously, <laughs> now I'm about to make it. Uh, but also, like, for white people, 
It's such a visceral, horrible... Because there was a tweet that I put up. <laughs> and it was such a visceral, horrible tweet. So that you hope the tweet is so horrible that you think they wouldn't notice the joke that's coming because it's such a horrible thing that I've put up. But obviously, if you're British Asian, you're past that. You're past the horribleness of it because you're like, yeah, yeah. I know that. And then you... But you see the joke. You're just like, I can see the joke there. Whereas whereas a white person would be like, that is such an awful thing. And then I undercut it with the joke and they're like, that's actually really funny. Yeah. Uh, I think I think it is this terminal condition I've got where my mouth and my brain just aren't engaged for 90% of the time, especially <laughs> in a situation like that. But, you know, I, I think I came up to you really awkwardly after the show to say, hey, I really enjoyed it or something. Yeah, you did, you did, you did. <laughs> and, then we, so and, then, and then we connected online. I was, I was so nervous. <laughs> Because to me, because I think because when you've been following someone from the beginning, they become like a really big star in your eyes. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you're yeah. now you're Tez. You're my. You know, now you're me. You're, you're the. Yeah, exactly. You're the brother that God didn't give me in the first place. Thanks, God. Um, <laughs> so so yeah, then you pop up on BBC Three and Man Like Mobin alongside Guz. and that was so cool because I didn't even know you were in that. Mm. So this thing starts, and I'm like, oh great. Some sort of Asian sitcom, because obviously I knew, having seen him perform on stage uh, at various things, and uh, but then you pop up in it as well as eight. I mean, what a show! Because you guys really just hit it out of the park with that series. Because you dealt with so many issues. It was funny. I think one reviewer described it as being like Breaking Bad meets Only Fools and Horses. That's a, that's a really apt description. We used to get Oli Fools a lot, actually. A few people said that to us. They're like, it reminds me of all it reminds me of Oli Fools a lot. It's like, you know, the biggest compliment you can give us. Like, we were so proud of that show. Or we are so proud of that show, I should say. And yeah, just to be part of that is just so surreal. Like, just to be part of a thing, a show that people love and reference. And also for a lot of people to be their favorite character. That in itself is also something like, I'm like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Yeah, everyone talks about Eight when they talk about that show. On uh, So for anyone listening, <laughs> Eight is the character that Tez plays. After all of that happens, we get to summer of 2019. You get in touch with me and I'm thinking, oh, message from Tez. This is exciting. And there's something you're up to that you couldn't tell me about at that moment, but you needed me to dress you for it. And that ended yes. up being the Tez O'Clock show for Channel yes. 4. Yes. That was... Yeah, I mean, huge. Yeah, absolutely huge. Headlining your own show, three episodes commissioned to be aired in, I think it was in August 2019. Yeah. I get confused yeah, yeah, yeah. with recent, because this pandemic really is just... Oh, yeah, because the, the last clock. 18 months have just been barely one year. Um, but yeah, it was it was the year one BC, which is before Corona. Yeah. So, yeah, tw- which is 2019. Um yeah, because I still think of it as last year, but it wasn't now. It was the year before last year. Um, so yeah, yeah, summer of 2019. But that was, was that a concept that you came up with or was that something that they came to you with? So so we originally had a thing of like, what what do you want to do? We had a meeting with Channel 4 and they were like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to do a show that looks like this. And the finished article was similar to what I pitched. Uh, obviously we then refined it and we thought about what it could be and how it could be unique and all that stuff but it was it was the show I wanted to make not that it was perfect but it was very much the show I wanted to make yeah I mean it was kind of uh, I think the end products I mean it definitely reminded me of elements of the MASH report with Nish and uh, mm-hmm. the 
um, the American one, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Yeah. 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 But it worked. I mean, it worked for me. I think it worked for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it worked for a lot of people. I think it's just, just the timing was bad because it was, you know, you know, when we're in the conversations about what might happen next or how do you want to bring it back or blah, 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 you know, talking about that. And then the pandemic hit. And so all conversations just stopped, you know, advertising revenues fell. Yeah. So now they've got to really think about how they can and what shows they can bring back. They're a lot, they're, they're on a tight budget anyway, Channel 4. Now they're on an even tighter budget. And now you've got the Tories breathing on everyone's necks and stuff. So it's, it's the landscape's changed even since, 20, since the summer of 2019. So I'm not sure the 10 o'clock show will ever come back or if it'll come back in the same way. But regardless, like I was so proud of what we did in that show. Like I was just so proud of it. Because all I wanted to do, because I, I remember saying to myself, like you might never get an opportunity to do this again. So all I want is to be proud of this show by the time it finishes and just be look back at it and be like, I was really happy that we did that and how we did it. And I am. I'm so proud of it. And it's still available now. Like if anyone wants to watch it, it's on all four, which is Channel yeah. 4's iPlayer. Uh, the Tez O'Clock show. It's, it's available I'm, to watch all three I'm episodes. I'm going to link that in the show notes as well, because if anyone hasn't seen it, they, they definitely should. Um, I mean, I remember the run-up to it, getting the broadcast dates. I, obviously, I knew what you were going to look like because I made your outfit. Um, Mate, that, I, that was a killer suit. What bro. was that process like for you? Because that was your first bespoke suit. Now I'll get the tailoring bit in. <laughs> it was, it was, it was. Like, I've always wanted one, but I could never feel like you know, from Blackburn working class, I could never feel like I could indulge in one. Um, and if I wanted to do it, I wanted to do it properly. So now that I had a TV studio that was going to pay for it, I was like, yes. And obviously, because we'd connected, you, you're the only professional suit tailor that I know. And I'm a big believer in like, you know, um, you know, local lo- local businesses and small businesses and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, yeah, Robot Robot is gonna be my guy. And obviously I, I love your work as well. Obviously I'd seen it um on Instagram and Twitter and stuff. I was like, definitely, like I, I want one of these. And you know, your classic amazing interior designs that you do on the suits, uh, the inside lining, I think it's called. Um, you know, what, I haven't seen that anywhere else, like to look that amazing. So I was like, Yeah, definitely. And bro, you smashed it, man. It looks I looked I looked so good. No, you did. I remember when the first show went live and me and my wife, we sat down on the sofa because we were just super excited. I mean, not obviously not just to see my work. It was mostly super excited that, you know, you had your own show and um, you came out on stage and it was even my wife just leaned forward in her seat. I was just, oh, what are you doing? She's like, man, he looks so hot. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. All right. I, d- I did that. Yeah, exactly. I, that's because of me, right? That's why it looks hot. Um, but, I mean, really, you just knocked it out of the park. And, you know, you came on and you were the star. Uh, so, yeah, I, I was just so happy. I really, really do hope they bring it back. I, I hope that they find some room in the in the budget to, to bring that back. I, I think it was necessary. It was my favourite segments were all the PBC stuff that you did. Pakistani is... Pakistani broadcasting Pakistani uh, channel, um, right? It's PBC. Yeah, yeah, corporation. corporation. Yeah, Pakistan, yeah. It was basically BBC, BBC, but Pakistani broadcasting, broadcasting Pakistani corporation. Pakistani broadcasting. Yeah, all yeah, that yeah. stuff with Guz was was brilliant. Um, obviously, the the worry with Guz whenever he's on the screen because he just tends to chew the scenery up um, was that he would overtake yeah, yeah, you, yeah. but it didn't. It was just it was perfect. And then Sindhu, obviously, always wonderful. I. 
loved i would love to meet her in real life she just i listen to her on the radio a lot and she's absolutely amazing she's amazing um and speaking of cindy she's you're going to be with her next week or is it going to be done remotely because your book's coming yeah yeah next week 8th of april yeah yeah so we we are sharing a stage together but socially distanced so on the 8th of april which is the day my book comes out and also my birthday i should add uh we're doing because obviously ordinarily i do a book tour obviously that's we're not able to do that so we're going to do a um a one-off live online event where Sindhu, where I've been, I'm in conversation with Sinduvi. She's going to interview me. I'm going to do a live reading, and then there'll be a Q and A where people who are tuning in can ask their questions. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really excited about it, man. I'm, I can't wait. I think we're doing it up the creek in Greenwich because um, that's my that's my manager's club. So we can obviously we don't have to worry about rent and stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm really I'm really really excited about it. So it should be fun. It'd be lovely yeah. to see Sindhu because I haven't seen her for over a year, um, and I love it to bits. So it'll just it'll just be nice to see someone. Yeah. Um, that's not in Blackburn. Um, yeah, so I can't wait, man. I'm looking. I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, it'd be good to finally have the book out there. And by that time, people might have read some of it. And yeah, I'm I'm really excited. It should be fun. It should be a really fun event. Yeah. And we have really good chemistry as well. So um, it should be it should be a fun watch. Exactly. I mean, the the book's entitled uh, "The Secret Diary of a British Muslim Aged Thirteen and Three Quarters." Yep. I'll just give a excerpt from the synopsis now for everyone listening. In this suitably dramatic roller coaster of a teenage memoir, Tez takes us back to where it all began, a working-class, insular British-Asian Muslim community in his hometown of post-Thatcher Blackburn. Meet Ummi, which is mum, Baji Rosie, the older sister, Shibs, the fashionable cousin, Waz, the cool cousin. I had a cool cousin called Waz as well. Um, Shiri, actually, wasn't my cousin. He was, like, my best friend, but called him cousin because I had to call his mum and dad auntie and uncle, and so he was my cousin, yeah, but he wasn't yeah, really yeah. my cousin. You know what I mean? Shibs, the fashionable yeah. cousin, uh, already said. Shiri, the cleverest cousin in a community with the most creative nicknames this side of Top Gun. Honestly, I cannot wait. So why now? Honestly, bro, it's as much as because there was a pandemic on and I needed something to do. That's that's the easy that's the easy answer. Is <laughs> like, bro, I was bored, didn't it? Like, I, I I had to do something. Um, but it was just timing, really. Timing. I, I had I had the time to write a book, which I wanted to do for a while. Uh, the publishers were keen for the book to happen as well, and it was just a good time in life where I could just because we all stopped, right? We suddenly the entire world stopped. Obviously, I stopped, and then I could just take proper time to reflect on my life and my childhood and the period that this book covers. Um, and it's just a fascinating exercise. I'd recommend yeah. it for anyone, regardless if you want to be published or not. Um, and yeah, it was just circumstances were really, really circumstances aligned and we took advantage of it. Also, I, th- I guess being back in your hometown during the pandemic with all your family around you, because your uncle to uh, how many nephews and nieces have you got now? Seven? Seven. Yeah, seven. Yeah, Crazy. split over two sisters. And have you let any of them play with your PlayStation Five yet? Um, my nephew has played with it briefly, very briefly. Yeah, very briefly. You're so generous. It's not a, it's not a toy, Roberto. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when we both got our hands on ours, we were cradling them like oh, babies. Oh my days! Oh my days! Actually, it's his birthday on Friday, so I was, I would love to get a hold of another one, but it's really difficult. Yeah, I know it's it, the stock situation is ridiculous, which I keep reminding all my friends who haven't got one yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we both got so lucky. <laughs> I wasn't even looking to get one. 
Like on launch day, I was just like, I'm not pre-ordering it. If I get one in a year's time, it's fine. Who cares? Next gen gaming's not really going to take off till then anyway. And then I was just, I just happened to be feeding the dogs that morning and I went onto my John Lewis app and I thought, let me just see what all the fuss is about. Clicked on PS5 in there and it just said, add to basket. I was like, what? Really? This was like nine in the morning. You just got lucky. So I added it, to, added it to the basket, picked it up from Waitrose the next day. Very lucky. I there was, I was hustling. My friends like a, were, all my friends I, were screwing. I, I was hustling like a crackhead, trying to get one. Yeah, I remember <laughs> my tweets. Right, <laughs> going where can I get? Yeah, like, your tweets. Can, Anyone got a PS Five? Where can I get one from? Um, and then yeah, I just got. And it wasn't even one of them where you could just like, you know, as a borderline celeb, some things you can get hooked up. The PS Five wasn't one of them. There were no hookups for that. Let's get back to the book. So. You're reliving childhood experiences, growing up in Blackburn and everything that you went through. Again, we'll find out next week. What was the hardest part to relive for you and to write? Um, my experiences with my stepdad, or ex-stepdad, I should say now, spoilers. Um, yeah, but not a nice man. Um, and so having to relive through those experiences was quite tough. I remember when I first told, I was nervous to tell my mum about it because... You know, Asians, we're quite shy people. We don't really like talking about personal lives. We don't like putting our, our personal mm. lives out there for public consumption. So I was a bit nervous about telling her about the book. And the first thing she said, you know, when I explained the time period it was going to cover the, this particular time period, these, these five years, yeah. the first thing she said was, oh, that, that was quite a hard time for us, though. And I remember just feeling, oh, God, mm. uh, it was... It was, um, but then she, you know, she got over it and she got excited about it and stuff. And and the more we talked about it, the more she realized how important it was to say these things and, and put these things out there. Uh, but yeah, I remember just reliving some of that stuff was tough because it's life though, isn't it? Like there's some really good, fun stories in there, but there are also some tough things in there like that. You're like, oh shit, man, mm. this guy, this guy really went through some stuff. And there's some stuff in there yeah. that I haven't put in which you can probably, if you are smart enough, you can probably read between the lines. There's enough subtext in there. I think if someone really wants to read between the lines, there's stuff in there that you could probably read into a bit, but that I haven't put in explicitly. Yeah, I guess part of the reason I'm looking forward to reading it, and I'll be honest, actually, there, there's a couple of reasons why I'm not looking forward to reading it, because I went through some quite dark times through my own childhood, and I'm guessing that there are going to be some parallels in a way mm. which are gonna get me looking at myself introspectively and you know that means by the time i by the time you get to the end of a, uh, an autobiography like that you know, the best autobiographies are always the ones that get you also thinking and thinking about yourself your own past uh, relative to the author's experiences and and the ones that make you feel the most as well and yeah, your book yeah, hasn't yeah. even come out yet but from the little kind of snippets here and there that I've read and you know now I've I've kind of got enough information that I, I'm kind of I, I've kind of got an idea of, of where you're going to be going within it because you're really what are you covering your teenage years like literally your teenage years yeah so so going on 14 to 18 and a half so the the, the week that I leave for university right so okay. year nine so so midway through year nine to the end of year 13 yeah which often a, a among the toughest years of growing up. Yeah, the, the very the most fo very formative years. Yeah. It's when you're, you've started to become aware of your sense of your place in the world. Yeah. 
So, Tez, I'm really glad because that means that there's obviously some potential for some follow-up books, right? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, the idea of going through it all again, the hardest part of writing a book is writing a book. Yeah. Literally, like, sitting down and putting in the hours well, getting, is hard. Getting started is always the hardest yeah, bit of any writing it's really exercise. tough. I, I remember having an interaction with um, Richard Osman online because he started writing his second yeah, book go last on. month. Name drop some more, yeah? And and <laughs> and I was like, I was like, Richard, I, I've, having just written a book, I can't imagine just starting that all over again. And I can't remember what you said, but it just like, just stay in the rhythm. Yeah. As in, just keep, just keep drumming. Yeah. Just don't, don't stop drumming. Um, and I was like, huh, I feel like I've stopped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I often have uh, Carolina, when she hears this back, she'll, um, she'll be nodding her head at this point because uh, she hears me saying that sometimes she'll interrupt me when I'm in a flow of writing and I will turn around to her and I'll say, I'm in a rhythm. I'm in a rhythm. Don't, don't interrupt me now. So for your follow-ups, I've uh, I've been doing some really, really hard thinking. Mm-hmm. And I have come up with some book title ideas. I'm ex- All right, I'm, ex- I'm excited about this. Okay, you ready? Yeah. You might want to write these down or just listen to the I've, podcast uh, again. Well, yeah, it's, it's, I'm recording the audio, so oh, hopefully okay, I can fine. All right, okay, listen you ready? back to it. Okay, so for yeah. the first follow-up, yeah. The Growing Pains of Tez Ilias. Nice. Yeah, not bad. Not bad, huh? Decent. Although, considering growing pains happened during your teenage years, you might already be covering that in this book. So, okay. Yeah, men- mentally, mental growth, though. Yeah. Okay. So, next one. So, this is for book number three. The True Confessions of Tez Ilias. Nice. Yep, going in. Yeah. 20s, going into London, living that living that lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which then brings me neatly into Tez Ilias, The Wilderness Years. What, what period are we covering there? I don't know. My, my, my lost years of the Home Office in Croydon. Basically, yeah, that's it. Um, the Whitgift Centre as well. Don't forget the Whitgift Centre. Yeah. Very, very oh my important. God. You could open that book, the first chapter, some piece of rubbish floating across the, you know. I think that one would come. I think that one would come before Confessions. Okay. So straight after uni. So the the growing pains covers university. Yeah. Then the then is the wilderness years where I'm left uni and what I did before comedy. That's a five year period. <laughs> then book number five. Tezili asked the Cappuccino years. Oh, yeah. My bourgeois mm. liberal arts life. Exactly. And then lastly, Tezili and the weapons of mass destruction. Actually, that's that's now I say it out loud. That is a really, really bad that's, uh, that's book title not... for, uh, uh, you know, the biography of a, of a British Muslim. Yeah. Maybe like just Tezili fucks off home. Because, <laughs> you know, I moved, I moved back to Blackburn. So maybe maybe that can be the last one. <laughs> Um, so uh, yeah anyway look God rest her soul Sue Townsend absolute legend I, I just had such a laugh when I saw the title of your book I was like that is actually really really clever <laughs> really clever thank you so uh, everybody who's listening go out there buy it tickets are still available for Tez's conversation with Cindy yes next week April the 8th yes it's also his birthday 8pm Again, I'll put the link in the show notes. Tickets are only £5 or £20 if you buy a ticket to the show and you'll get a copy of the book as well. Hopefully, we're coming out of lockdown gradually and it's probably about the only good job this government is doing at the moment. But again, we won't get too much into politics. Mm-hmm. Um, what's uh, what's coming up in the future? I know your show that was meant to be happening in late 2019 got postponed, got postponed. It's now hopefully happening because we're going to see you on, I think it's on Carolina's birthday later this year. 
Yeah, so yeah, so we're touring that the show that I was meant to do last autumn is now I just been bumped forward 12 months and it's happening this autumn touch wood if everything goes according to plan. Um so I'm really excited about that. Obviously need to need to write that show and need to test it and um and yeah, hopefully there'll be some sort of Edinburgh fringe this summer where I can go and sort that show out and and just do it over a number of nights and really beast it and and whip it into shape and hopefully by September when the tour starts it's where it needs to be more or less at least 90%. So by the time we get into November um and, and you know we film it for whatever then it's 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 the show that it needs to be. Um yeah. so yeah that's exciting. There's also a pre-order incentive. So if you pre-order the um book you, there is a competition that my publishers are running where you can win one of 40 pair of tickets to any tour show so whether the one in london or the one in glasgow or anywhere in between uh so yeah if you if you, if you get in the book don't forget to enter the prize draw for for two free tickets and again i'll I'll put all the links there for everybody um brilliant well look tez thank you so much for joining me today well, thank you for having thank me thank you man. so much for your time oh this has been absolutely great i can't wait for the day when we can actually see each other and hang oh, out in person again i've missed hugs yeah well, that was the first thing we did, and the first time we met in real life, well, after I heckled you at the show, so years later, <laughs> you turned up at a workroom, and that was the first thing we did, we sort of looked at each other, and then it was like, we just went straight in for the hug, yeah, and yeah, I'm a big yeah. hugger, as everybody knows me knows, so, yeah, no, can't wait to see you, um, good luck with the launch next week, thank happy you. birthday next week thank as well. Thank you very much, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, secret diary of a British Muslim aged 13 and three quarters. You can pre-order it now from Waterstones, from all good bookshops and all the independent ones. And, 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 and audible as well. If you want, if you're an audio book fan. Are you actually reading I've it? Rec- I've, re- I've read it. I've read it. It's done. It's in, it's in the can. Brilliant. So that's also available. Because uh, a lot of people have asked me about that. And they're like, who's going to read it? I'm like, obviously I'm a stand-up comedian. Obviously I'm reading my own book. It's in my voice. <laughs> it's about my teenage years. Who else would be reading it? Actually, you should release an alternative version in a, you know... Yeah, what, read by... Uh, who would be the alternative voice of my book? It has to be a real juxtaposition. Jacob Rees-Mogg. Right? Like, yeah, or like Helen Mirren or something. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, as I say, good luck for the launch next week. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll do this again later in the year. That'd be great, once man. You've, uh, once you've got through a few dates of the tour. Or maybe... Maybe after the fringe, or maybe at the fringe. Yeah, maybe if you're up there, that'd be really easy. I'll come up there as, as long as we're allowed to move around Scotland. If Scotland let us in, yeah. I mean, if 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 there's, a, if there's a fringe, it means that we can move around. Otherwise, there is no fringe. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Right. On that note, Tez, thanks so much. Cheers, bud. See you soon. Well, I hope you found that hour with Tez as entertaining and insightful as I did. Thank you once again to Tez for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me. And thank you, my listeners, for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us. That's it for another week. If you're enjoying the show, please, please rate and review. It really helps other people to discover us. And if you really had fun today, why not share us with your family and friends? I love your questions, comments, feedback and ideas, so don't be a stranger and please get in touch. If you'd like to apply to be a guest on the show, just send me a direct message on social media or email me using the address in the show notes. Once more, thank you so much for joining me. 
I can't wait for you to join me on the next one.